Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Hello and welcome to the Horn One Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, consider signing up for the Patreon. There you get ad-free content, early access, exclusive episodes, and monthly supporter hangouts. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. If you don't like the subscription-based models, there are other ways of supporting the show that are linked in the description. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus. Ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day. Knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart? Available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Welcome to the One on One Podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. Look, that's not a mystical thing. That's people not knowing what the hell they're talking about and trying to come up with fanciful ideas. And, you know, that's a whole problem. That's, That's actually the whole problem with alchemy. The Philosopher's Stone, especially now, I can really only speak about this from two different pathways. The pathway that I've done the most is the Flamel pathway as passed on to me by the philosophers of nature and Jean Dubuis. Now, he actually has a video um, that was used to be published by Triad Publishing. This was taken back into the days of handheld VHS camcorders. And so, you know, you'll get kind of poor quality and some shoddy things and, you know, but you can see absolutely everything and 
with modern, more or less, you know, 1990s style, modern equipment and how to be able to produce the Philosopher's Stone. Let me just start by saying that the only reason a person would ever be able to accomplish that work, even remotely safely, is if they had years and years and years of laboratory work under their belt already. And the only reason why we should undertake that work is as the crowning jewel of our personal alchemical practice to show that we have been able to transmute something of absolutely no significant value such as lead or you know a baser metal into gold showing that we have performed the very final crowning jewel of our initiation into nature's mysteries tjojp.com patreon.com slash the one-on-one podcast make sure to follow the show on youtube as well one-on-one podcast pretty much everywhere tjojp tjojp.com and today we are joined by a an interview that i've been looking forward to an episode i've been looking forward to because i've on this show i talk a lot about alchemy and i don't out of the hours and hours that I poured into studying alchemy, I don't think I understand it any better than I did when I first started studying it. So welcome to the show, Phoenix. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, where can people find you? Plug your stuff up front so people can go look you up and maybe purchase some tinctures or whatever it is that they want to get. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks so much, man. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Anybody who's interested in checking out my website, you can visit uh, phoenixaurelius.org. Um Obviously, there's going to be links here in the description, even under my name tag here on my placard. So if you want to uh, just take a look at that, visit the website. Basically, I run a research academy that is uh, dedicated towards studying alchemy in the modern age, bringing it into the light of modern science a little bit, running clinical trials and seeing how we can be able to utilize this for medicinal means and merits and also various other applications to transform our entire culture and civilizations as we know it um, in order to meet the demands of, of modern people. So the purchases of absolutely everything that you would find on our site uh, go to support our research. We're 100% self-funded because we don't want to be censored. We don't want uh, our information to be tampered with, no spin doctors, anything like that. Basically, if I study something, I want to be able to go on a show like this or on my own podcast, uh, which is called the Alchemiculture Podcast, and to be able to present all of this information as is. So uh, that's that's pretty much it. But uh, the website's overwhelming. And uh, we have like a guide of like, if you're new to the website, watch this video, here's how to get interested, stuff like that. And you can always reach out to uh, our office support. Her name is Rebecca, and uh, she can answer any questions that you guys might have. Yeah, I spoke to her when I had reached out to you. So because I'd reached out to you on Instagram first, and it gave me the, the email and I was like, oh, okay, so I'll hit him up on there. But this is what his website, check it out. And Phoenix, how does somebody 
right? I want to get into your origin story a little bit of how somebody would go about getting into this sort of, right? Because alchemy is one thing on its own. And I have, yeah. I feel like my views, and we can discuss it today, my views on alchemy are a little bit, dare I say, tainted a little bit, right? Like I, I have, <laughs> and the reason I love alchemy so much is because to me, it combines like the occult, magic and all this, you know, interdimensionalism, all in like one package. And it just comes really together. And that's what I love about it, because you can spend hours picking apart various aspects of alchemy. Yeah. And hence, that's how, right, the homunculus research on. Unfortunately, I, I've become known as the homunculus guy, the homuncologist <laughs> in this community. And it's like one of those aspects to where there are stories about it, how there are stories about various things in, in history and in, in life. But it's one of those things where it could have been a possibility. It could have been a thing. Or were they speaking in allegory? Were they speaking in symbols? Like, we don't really know, but we know that they have the technology to, to do something similar. Perhaps not an alchemical homunculus, but they're, ma they're breeding animals in false matrices, right? Artificial matrices, all these different things. So it's a possibility. And I think that mystery is what really draws people in to this sort of thing where it's like, well, they might've had the technology to, to actually be able to do this, but what got you cause spagyrics and I want to, I have a lot of questions for you today and you know, you could perhaps help me learn cause I'm going to be a student today, classes and sessions. So I'm going to be asking questions, I'm be learning with the people, but what got you interested in spagyrics and would you say are spagyrics and alchemy the same or does one sprout from the other? How would you define the two? These are great questions. Let, yeah, let's just start off at the top. Um, okay, let's start with like alchemy and spagyria. Are they the same thing? Alchemy had been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's been practiced pretty much ubiquitously all over the world. We have ancient Taoist alchemists that long before Nagong tradition uh, was was exclusively practiced as kind of like a spiritual and internal type of alchemy. They actually did have physiological alchemy, and we do have some records of that uh, making various uh, interesting sulfides, which they would have referred to as like uh, the peach nectar of the gods and different types of things like this in Taoist alchemical practices, very, very ancient Taoist alchemical practices. We still have a living tradition of alchemy in India today, too, which is known as the Rasa Shastra tradition. And... Um, they manufacture various different types of medicines, but they also work very particularly with making a uh, mercurial sublimated um, shivalingam that uh, can be put inside of the mouth or put inside of the yoni, put inside of various areas of the body in order to help to create an incorruptible body. Uh, it, it's meant for life extension and for being able to purify the light body for further incarnations. Uh, and that springs out of the Vedic tradition, of course. And so it's tied very heavily into Hinduism. Um, but they also make basmas and different types of medicines that are still even used today in, in Siddhi medicine and in Ayurveda uh, today. So they, they have their tradition. In the West, we see that the earliest real records that we have of um, the, the earliest surviving records that we have of alchemy being practiced are in ancient Egypt. And ancient Egypt, of course, was taken over by the Greeks. The Greeks, of course, kind of assumed a lot of the theories and philosophies. And, you know, Greeks and Romans were really cool with adopting uh, other pantheons of gods and goddesses they didn't have the same types of barriers like oh this is our 
our strict religion, they kind of saw other gods and goddesses as just different cultural interpretations of their same gods and goddesses, just, you know, perceived differently or conceptualized differently. And so um, the cornerstone of all alchemical literature was known as the Emerald Tablet. And um, we actually see that that was put on display in Alexandria by Alexander the Great himself. And we have a couple of historical written records being, you know, talking about that. Uh, That tablet, you know, was found by Apollonius of Tyana and had basically been preached about and talked about uh, kind of almost evangelically for a period of time. Uh, during ancient Greece. And of course, later the Arabs come and they take over Egypt and then kick the Greeks out. They burn the libraries of Alexandria, but they took some of the alchemical texts, including translations of this emerald tablet. So we don't have the original tablet, which was in cuneiform or some sort of interesting writing that was in bas-relief in emerald, which basically anybody who's practiced practical alchemy today or read uh, the works of St. Germain and and even know about St. Germain's actual court records of being able to remove the flaws from diamonds and emeralds. That's a really simple type of thing. All it is is being able to break down uh, the structure of, of the mineral, being able to put it back into uh, flux and recasting it or recrystallizing it. And so these types of things were known by uh, ascetics and, and certain you know spiritual men of the old world. And by the time the Arabs get a hold of of Egypt, things started kind of going downhill, but they translated a lot of different things. We'll fast forward a few hundred years, uh, about 900 AD, and this Arabic alchemy and Arabic text start making their way into Spain through, you know, uh, into Europe, I guess I should say, through southern Spain. They come up, they introduce it. Uh, A couple hundred years later, we get guys like Nicholas Flamel, who uh, are able to meet some old Hebrew alchemists um, and then a new kind of iteration of alchemy really starts to take place inside of Europe. And then that gives way to Paracelsus in the 1500s. Paracelsus basically was a guy who invented Spagyria and he told all of the alchemists in Europe, stop trying to make lead or try stop trying to make gold and turn lead into gold and using it for self uh, aggrandizing riches and to you know uh, help your government out and all these other things that's that's folly and if you're doing that you're not even a real alchemist anyway because you haven't performed the actual transformation on the self if you're out there trying to look for riches that's like you you're in the wrong camp you're doing the wrong thing you're in it for the wrong reasons instead you should take all of this information that you have and all of these techniques that you know and all of the methodologies that you have and apply it to helping to heal not only the human race but all of nature itself and helping us to co-evolve so he created what he called spagyria and um, there are a few quotes that he has that kind of today uh, you can create arguments one way or the other if you just look at a couple of quotes so he would say at one time uh, spagyria, which is otherwise known as alchemy, dot, dot, dot. And then he goes on to talk about that. But people will take that little isolated thing and say, oh, therefore, alchemy and spagyria are the same. But if you take a look at his entire corpus of medical works, spagyria is actually the medical application of uh, alchemy. 
And alchemy is one of the prerequisites in order to be able to practice spagyria. It is not the other way around. In the modern day, when you learn spagyria or buy spagyric resources, you're going to learn from figures like Frater Albertus and even uh, Jean Dubuis to a certain extent and these other kind of big names of of, uh, 20th century alchemists that uh, spagyria means herbal alchemy. And that... That happened some point in the 19th century occult revival where the practices of alchemy were very much so being um, kind of talked about and perpetuated within 19th century occult circles, especially within uh, renewed what we would call Rosicrucian orders, uh, the KORC or the Kabbalistic Order of the Rosy Cross, um, Amork, of course, uh, ancient mystical order, Rosicrucis, uh, different types of Rosicrucian organizations. They kind of took alchemy in the 19th century occult revival and took philosophies of Paracelsus and earlier Rosicrucian writings and kind of structured this initiatic um, system that is based entirely upon alchemical language and terminology. And some of those orders still had a couple of Western style practicing alchemists that were able to show uh, various different processes that would accompany the degrees. Even in the United States, we had uh, Orson Graves teaching uh, alchemy 1940s, I think, uh, 1940s through 1950s uh, at uh, San Jose uh, Rosicrucian Park for Amork. And then uh, Frater Albertus was born out of that same tradition. Uh, he had studied, of course, with Amork. And by the time uh, Orson Graves and a couple of other people were no longer teaching, alchemy in uh, San Jose anymore. You have, um, you actually have Frater Albertus opening the largest alchemy school in the entire world here where I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, um, from 1960 to about 1984. uh, During his, you know, when he passed, uh, the doors kind of closed, people tried to keep it around, but it was a personality cult, it was a personality college. Um, and so it was never really able to, to stay alive, but tons of his followers and students are still around. Um, a lot of them are, are of an advanced age, you know, definitely the youngest people would be in their sixties and seventies right now. Um, but I had the opportunity to inherit a large portion of my library, alchemical library, and a very large portion of my laboratory, um, from one of his secretaries, her and her husband were both students there. And then after his death, um, in France, there's another guy named Jean Dubuis. He was teaching virtually the exact same curriculum, but in France, he found a translator from Quebec named Patrice Malaisé. And uh, Patrice uh, ended up doing all of the translations of the work and published all of Jean Dubuis' uh, books, Spagyria 1 and 2, um, uh, Fundamentals of Esoteric Principles, and a number of his other works into English, and then uh, Russ House, Patrice Malaise, Jack Glass. Uh, Jack Glass was the longest-running student of Frater Albertus, very, very skilled in, in the alchemical arts. And they opened a United States chapter known as the Philosophers of Nature and published a lot of the books and some videos and demonstrations under Triad Publishing. Uh, Russ and Sue House, his wife, they're no longer together, uh, Russ and Sue. And I don't think Triad Publishing exists as a result of that separation anymore. But uh, you can still find uh, those books of Jean Dubuis. They are being published now in the UK by another uh, author um and and kind of compiling all the information and actually doing better translations too because the initial translations of the english work uh left out a lot of things that were in the french work 
um, and, and didn't make it to the American uh, English versions. And so now these days we actually have all of the translations of the French versions in English and so on and so forth. So, you know, when we take a look at alchemy and Spagyria, the the more common opinion these days is that Spagyria is not its own system of medicine. People don't even really know that because they've not read enough of Paracelsus' own work. Admittedly, it's hard to do. You have to learn uh, the high German form that was spoken during the 1500s in order to be able to read the text properly and interpret them. Or you have to rely on translations from scholars, and scholars are not initiates of alchemy, so they don't know when there are double blinds put in there. They don't know... uh, they don't just have like a, the general understanding that an actual alchemist would have when you read something uh, as an alchemist, especially with modern chemical knowledge, we can kind of look to see like, oh, would that actually work or would that attain the result that we're looking for? And oftentimes not. And so we know that there's a double blind in there and a proper translator like myself or, or other individuals would be able to um kind of rectify that for a more modern audience, whereas a lot of the scholars are just doing direct translations of the material itself, and it's not directed towards alchemists, it's directed towards other scholars who are looking at it as a snapshot in time. But what I have done is I have pulled all of Paracelsus' material out of the historic past, brought it into the present, been replicating all of his experimentation, split testing it dozens of different ways, Um, running clinical trials, uh, human clinical trials on the different remedies that were talked about and produced, as well as running um, clinical trials and creating standards for a lot of the spagyric items of pharmacopoeia that were created well after the death of Paracelsus and the Paracelsian physicians that followed for about 150 years after his death. So I look at spagyria as an entire medicinal art form or an entire medical system equal to or comparable to Ayurveda, equal or comparable to traditional Chinese medicine. But instead of having thousands of years of multiple practitioners building upon this, we really only have Paracelsus and about, you know, 15 other Paracelsian physicians that we can look to in the historical past. And then uh, the majority of my works are pulling that out and bringing it into the light of modern science and seeing how it works, why it works, and how to be able to perform it, creating modern standards for it, bringing it into current good manufacturing practices, and reconstructing an entire system of medicine. And because there's been so many advancements in chemical philosophy, in psychological philosophy, and other different types of areas of healing... Um, I can't call what I'm doing strictly Paracelsian anymore. And so that's why we've chosen to uh, name the new form of spagyric medicine after myself. And now we just call this Aurelian medicine. And it's basically like a 21st century adaptation of Paracelsian principles, but with modern technologies, modern philosophies and other things incorporated into that while sticking 100% true to the essence, the nature, the pillars of philosophy, et cetera, that that Paracelsus had. So in my opinion, the way that I teach, alchemy is a prerequisite for spagyria. If you're not already a good alchemist, you will not be a good spagyrist because you need to understand intrinsically what the transformations look like, not only inside of the lab and how to be able to perform them with ease and grace, but you also need to know what the transformations look like psychologically and spiritually so that you can guide other individuals to be able to do that. And that requires a person being an alchemist first and foremost before they ever attempt to uh, use it for medicinal purposes for other individuals. And so 
that's kind of, uh, yeah, that's kind of the main difference there. Excellent breakdown there and, and nice little brief history of alchemy as well. And there's so much we can pick at here. So this is why I said that my views on alchemy are, are a little tinkered. because there's, there's so many different paths, right? You have the Paracelsian path, you have a path, you have the Valentinian path, you have various paths of alchemy and all these alchemists were doing others, the Aurelian path. So now, you know, all these different alchemists were adopting ideas of either their contemporaries or people who came before them and they were adding their own spin to it, which essentially in any magical system, you're going to have that, right? Because it's, it's meant to be fitted for the practitioner. So for, for or, or for yeah. the alchemist, whatever you have, John D right. Crowley took it golden Dawn. And then you have a whole lineage after that. Now the problem with that, and this is something I want to talk about. It's like, what has been lost because of that? Because I've actually done a Gerard Dorn because he was one of the ones that really was one of the main guys to preserve and translate a lot of Paracelsus' work into Latin. Now, we see how you're, you're talking about the original German perhaps had something that the Latin wasn't going to have. And then the Latin, right? So you get a sort of diluted type of thing here. You, ha you have a, a, a very what I call a cosmic phone of a uh, game of telephone where like, look at all of ancient history. You have the similar gods right at the very beginning, all through all different cultures. And it's like, well, maybe they were talking about the same thing, but then certain people got into power and maybe fused it down to, to one guy, you know, I'm just spitballing yeah. here, but the idea that, it, that this knowledge has been diluted. And then maybe perhaps how you're saying a lot of these scholars, they don't look at it like, I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist. I'm more of an esoteric. I'm more into esotericism and like the occult more than anything. Cause I do think that some conspiracy theories are pretty ridiculous, but when I'm looking at something, I'm looking at it. I'm able to, I guess, disassociate with like the, the rash, the most rational academical type of thinking and like really put myself in that sort of woo woo fringe sort of thinking and look at things from a different perspective versus these scholars. Like how, how dare you? There's no such thing as a homunculus. Like, you know what I mean? Like that, like, so they're very defensive and I've even encountered people in, in my experience of reaching out to, honestly, I'm afraid to reach out to guests sometimes to be like, once they take one look at my website or my YouTube channel and, and, and some have some are like, Hey, I don't think we align either with our beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Rather that be political or not, but that's a whole different thing. And I've had people say no because of what I talk about, which is fine. But what are your thoughts on? So do you preserve the Christ Paracelsus talked about in order to achieve the magnum opus, you needed to first right purify yourself. You needed to do the minor work before you're able to complete the great work. Do you and your works still keep that spiritual aspect? How important is the spiritual aspect while doing this practice, the spagyrics? Do you keep that? Because that's something that if you go to a hospital, right, that they're or any place that they're practicing chemistry, they're not going to be like, yeah, we're going to wait till the waxing moon is at the whatever yeah. for the crest or whatever you know gatorade this and asparagus <laughs> this like they're not going to yeah. talk about that but how important is it to capture that and keep that i guess tradition alive in the work well for me it's it's critical 
And in fact, like, you know, you can't it, see the same thing happen in, in Dallas Alchemy. They were at once sublimating some really intense, crazy chemicals through three different cauldrons. Um, and the shape and the position of those cauldrons would oftentimes determine what they were subliming or what they were creating, uh, what, what types of substances they were working on, whether it was a liquid distillation, whether it was a dry distillation, so on and so forth. That eventually, you know, the, the skills died out with some people because they were like, oh, damn, that's dangerous, or oh, I don't want to do that, or oh, that's too hard. But then they ended up just kind of taking the philosophy or the essence of it and saying, okay, now you have you know, Dong Tin, now you have like middle jiao, now you have upper jiao. And these are aspects inside of your energetic body. And even in Chinese medicine today, which has been entirely removed from all of its spiritual practices, we still talk about lower jiao, like you have dampness in lower jiao, you're probably to have um, like uh, bladder infections, like you're going to have swelling in, in um, colon, you're going to have, you know, different types of things like this, especially if you have heat, you're going to have infections. If you have dampness, you might also have infections. You'll definitely have swelling. You'll have fat uh, and adipose tissue. You'll have, you know, all these different types of things. And so they still kind of, it, it's still there, but it's so bastardized and so heavily removed from what the original aspect of it was. Like it was an actual literal thing with a literal practice that got, you know, whatever the opposite of transliterated is into a kind of a philosophic or metaphorical framework inside of the energetic body or, or for med medicinal purposes. Right. So we see that happening all over the place in tons of other things. And my goal has been to not do that. I don't want to relinquish any of the spiritual, psychological, uh, astrological, different and metaphysical kind of components that were talked about or utilized to a time period where they quote unquote, just believed in that. My whole goal is to actually say, let me take that tradition as it has come down to me and as the authors actually talk about it, and let me subject that to the greatest scrutiny that I possibly can to see if there is anything viable here or whether that was just an evolving kind of practice of the time. And usually we can see that there is a lot of evolving practices. For instance, um, just in the practice of astrology, Paracelsus hated tropical astrology. He spoke out about it. He told all of the Galenic physicians who were casting medical charts of the decumbiture of the sick, basically the time that you get sick, you write down the, the date and the time, you give that to your physician or rather the physician's runner. A physician never really saw you back in the day. He would send a physician's runner to go and gather a urine sample to look at your tongues, you know, to do different types of things like this, and then go and relay that information back to him. Uh, doctors were not at the bedside of the sick at that time. Um, so, you know, they would, they would do these things and then they would cast these charts and whatever they were doing had nothing to do with the actual positions of the planets in the sky anymore. And largely that's because of Ptolemy, um, you know, when he ended up, you know, writing a lot of his astrological treatises, he acknowledges that the procession of the equinoxes is important, but for that time period, uh, it's a little bit too difficult of a calculation for most uh, people in, in the Greek Empire at that time and the Roman Empire that followed. And so what they end up doing is just creating these fake 
concepts of where the stars actually are and a fake concept of where the planets are. And it's all just based on calculations. Today, we call that tropical astrology. And if you look at tropical astrology and look at the sky or like an astronomical program, you're going to see that there are vast differences. They are, they do not align even remotely. They're, you know, some 30, 30 degrees apart in, in a lot of cases now, 27 to 38 degrees apart. So, you know, Paracelsus said, actually, I will cast your phlebotomy uh, tables and your astrology into the sea of Pilatus. Basically, I will destroy it. And he says, I'll reverberate your your uh, philosophies to a feces, meaning like I, I'm going to burn away all of this falseness. And he basically said that all you have to do is just be an astronomer and look at the sky and you'll be able to see in the night sky that here's Venus perhaps. And the constellation right behind that might be the constellation of Leo, right? So therefore Venus is actually in Leo and not all of the constellations take up the same amount of degrees in the sky. And by the way, there's not just 12 of them. There's actually 13 of them. Ophiuchus has one of his legs crossing across the ecliptic, the ecliptic being the area of, of our visible sky where all of the luminaries or all of the planets actually um, orbit, you know, as far as we can tell. And I'm sorry for any flat earth listeners, you're going to not like my terminology, but <laughs> at any rate, this is the way that it's conceived. So with that being said, Paracelsus says, you know, these guys are out to lunch. Here's the true astronomy, but he never details that out. He just says, you have to be a, a, a good astronomer. If you're a good astronomer, you'll know what's going on. And the stars, by the way, actually do have an effect, but not the effect that you think. And they actually do create disease because that's one of the five causes of disease that Paracelsus talked about is enzastrale or enzastrorum, cause of disease due to the stars and electromagnetic sympathies with them. Um, and more than the stars, they're actually more with the planetary bodies. But still, that being said, um, we, we have to take a look at that information. And when we study Paracelsus in particular, it can be really, really difficult because so many people were writing under the name Paracelsus posthumously that we now, from a scholastic angle, we have to separate what we call pseudo-Paracelsian texts written by fake people writing under the name of Paracelsus from actual Paracelsian texts and the tone, the materials, the ingredients, like everything about it is actually pretty telltale. You can tell even Basil Valentine, actually, I'm like 99% certain in saying this, but Basil Valentine is actually a posthumous uh, character, fictional character that was created to um, be able to publish Paracelsus' text, but Paracelsus didn't have the greatest of reputations at that time in certain circles, and so they said, oh, this is Basil Valentine's, but you can see where Basil Valentine's work, like the 12 Keys and so on and so forth, where those elaborate upon the missing components of Paracelsus' work that he originally said, I have written about, and he talks about himself writing about those, but then we never see those texts coming to light. All of Basil Valentine's work illuminates all of that, but it never comes forth and says, this is Paracelsus' work. And also the tone is very similar, the religious um, fervor and, and unique type of religious, uh, mystical Christian nature kind of comes out in, in those works and vice versa. What Basil Valentine doesn't elaborate on, Paracelsian works actually do elaborate on. And so if you can read those as continuations of the same work, you can really begin to put things together in a real 
real way. And I'm not the only person who thinks that. In fact, there's a great scholar, an alchemical scholar named Eric J. Laporte. And he, I think, also has that opinion. And besides myself, there aren't that many other people that I know of that are intimately familiar with both of those uh, bodies of literature to quite the same degree as what we might be. And we both share that same opinion and we reached it independently of each other. So I think that, um, you know, there, there's things like that where we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can't just assume that things that they practice in the past were just their beliefs. We really have to bring all of that tradition in and we have to see what works. Now, I've been able to actually verify in clinical environments with no less than about 200 clients now that ends astrale absolutely absolutely is a thing there is a cause of uh for legal terms i can't call it disease anymore i have to call it cause of imbalance but there are causes of imbalance um due to the stars and in everybody that i test that's the most common cause now it doesn't mean that it's the most common thing that is causing the root cause of the symptoms that they come to me for like a lot of people come to me with uh, severe autoimmune disorders and so on and so forth the ancestrale may be contributing factors to that, but it's not the root cause of it. But it does mess with a lot of different things, like ancestrale luna is really based on the north and south lunar nodes and their positions in relationship to uh, where they were at, at your, when you were born inside of your natal chart. And all of this is geometrical relationships. So when things are at like 60 degrees or a sextile, when things are at 90 degrees or a square or 180 degrees, which is an opposition to where they were at subjectively to the individual's birth locations, then you will see an antipathy of um, those energies. And then that originates what is called ancestrale or cause of imbalance due to the positions of the stars or technically the planets. Um, and, uh, like Luna deals with the distribution of neurotransmitters and hormones. Um, soul deals with the, where the vitality is centered inside of the individual and how their vitality is going to be able to be expressed. It also deals with cardiac functions. Uh, I guess we could just call that cardiovascular functions as well as spinal functions and so on and so forth. And so I have a tremendous amount of clinical data to be able to show uh, through dozens, you know, hundreds now of case studies, like this is an actual thing. And when we clear this up, um, the, this person, you know, notices that these types of symptoms decrease massively in intensity or some of their symptoms like uh, psychological aspects or um, even some minor physiological things they're able to clear up. So that's that's a huge part of my work is being able to keep the tradition as it is, study it as I can, and then be able to see where it differs from the results that I get in my clinical work versus the way that it's been talked about since the time of Paracelsus, because, you know, all of this, all the planetary hours and associations of the seven planets to the seven days of the week and all these other things. Those are impositions that are ridiculous, okay? Like uh, Pope Gregory and, and the Julian calendar, even before that, you know, when we're talking about Gregorian calendar, like they, they decided that they wanted seven days in a week. Seven, that's arbitrary. There's no seven days. And there's not just seven planets in our solar system. And so to say that these seven planets deal with these seven noble metals, which deal with, those are anecdotal things that I cannot validate or verify through any sort of science or clinical study or split test in the laboratory at all. And that has led me to finding out like, well, what does actually happen and what 
forces are actually there, if not those, or are there any? And um, I'm still nuts deep in that research, so I don't have definitive answers, but uh, those who are familiar with my work with astronomological calendars will know um, how much I have poured in 15 years now of just solid dedication year after year after year of being able to sort this out and be able to see what effects can we have in a garden or a farm environment and how do the stars impact that? What impacts do we have in a laboratory environment uh, with all of our chemicals and what, what impacts do we have health-wise within uh, various clients and so on and so forth. So yeah, I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, and Paracelsus, right, he's such a, and I looked up the book here by J. Eric Laporte, Keys to the Kingdom of Alchemy, Unlocking the Secrets of Basil Valentine's Stone. I'm going to have to pick up a copy of that. And Paracelsus is such an interesting character in history. You know, pseudo-Paracelsus with the pseudopigrapha, I think it's what it's called, where they attribute a author that's not the, right, the original author. But Paracelsus was this very right mad scientist in the lab type of guy so allegedly he was addicted to was it opium right he was a uh, he was a Most, <laughs> he was a I mean, there, are, there are some legends of that but he never used his own medicine that way he created laudanum and then laudanum was kind of they used the same name and bastardized it as a basic opium tincture mm. many many years after his time his laudanum was a very unique multi-herb recipe that did not stop a person up, but was able to get them out of pain and did not have addictive qualities to it. But he didn't like that. He, he was a notorious drunk, though. He would drink people under the table, come home at two or three, wake his uh, students up and give the most brilliant lectures possible to his students and demand that they were able to transcribe everything that he was saying and that's where a lot of his book material comes wow. from so the the drunken the drunken ramblings of a madman is essentially what that was so like hey, hey pay attention and he just goes on this <laughs> yeah yeah he would just go on like this crazy diatribe and basically be <laughs> like y'all better like transcribe this perfectly because i'm only going to say it once yeah. but yeah he was he was very Especially, you know, at the end of his life. So he was uh, bludgeoned in the back of the head. Blunt force trauma killed him. His whole skull completely caved in. Which we still um, have, by the way, too, right? We have pieces of his skeleton, allegedly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he has a, a formal gravesite, and yeah, it's pretty well documented what he died of. Um, but he was only like, uh, what, I think 43 when he died. So he was not very old. People hated him. Governments hated him. And the reason why was that uh, he was a little bit of, a, shall we say, a, a, a fiery character. Um, <laughs> he would tell people point blank when they were being stupid and when they were dumb, and he would be able to back it up. He would prove it. But people don't like being told that they're dumb, and they don't like being told that they're stupid. And the entire medical profession that you know had dozens uh, hundreds even of years of you know their science at the time and tradition they they were so staunch about tradition so staunch about their uh catholicism so staunch about all these other things that when he came up and shook it all up and said now you're doing it all wrong and i can prove it to you 
they didn't much like that, but he was responsible for healing multiple principalities. He was responsible with a single pill sometimes, entire colonies of lepers, you know? So uh, they put him in a leper colony and say, hey, you think you're so clever, you know, cure these guys and don't come back out till you do. And like two weeks later, he does. And all except for the people who were already too far gone were actually completely healed of their leprosy and, and back out into society. Um, he was curing syphilis. He was curing the plague. And his cure for the plague was basically modern homeopathy um, in, in a really clever way. He knew that the body is an alchemical vessel that is able to purify anything. And so if the plague it has these effects that are affecting digestion and affecting everything else, then the excrement of that person is going to contain the bacteria and and it's also going to contain other things. Now, they didn't know about bacteria, but he just knew that the essence of whatever the body was trying to purify from that disease was contained inside of the excrement. And so he'd take a pin drop into the excrement of the afflicted individual and then put that into a small little piece of bread and roll that up into a pill and have that person swallow it. And that's how he was treating the plague. And it worked 100 times out of 100. So, you know, he was basically using like the hair of the dog that, that bit you is the cure that will heal you. And that wasn't his only trick, but that's what inspired Samuel Hahnemann hundreds of years later to create the entire field of homeopathy. So, you know, the, the dude was brilliant, but he was chased out of so many places. Um, on his very first day teaching in university in Basel, he grabbed all of the books of Avicenna, uh, Ibn Sina would be his, his Persian name, but they took all of his books and the books of Galen and books were like the printing press was pretty damn new at this point. And he throws them into the center of the courtyard and starts a fire and says, if you want me to teach you, you must unlearn all of this because it's, it's out to lunch. It's not very good at all. And you can watch it burn. And so many of his students come from the rich nobility where their dads are trained in this and that it's a gen genealogical thing that got them into university, right? Like, just like you see with Yale and Princeton and, you know, Ivy League, uh, Oxford, Ivy League uh, universities today, it was the same thing, same institutionalized bullshit was happening back then. And so he, it pissed a lot of people off. And eventually, you know, they had to say, well, you know, not only do you have to compensate us for these books that you burned, you bastard, but you can't be, you know, teaching like that. Teach them whatever you want because your merits are really good, but don't, don't be doing this and don't, don't, but he just couldn't help himself. He just had that personality. It was like the whole world is full of, you know, mental dwarves and I'm a giant. And how do I deal with that? He was always in a case of suffering. And near the end of his life, that led to pretty severe alcoholism. Plus, he's in Switzerland uh, and, and what we would now refer to as like Germanic areas. So uh, they had some pretty damn good ale. Yeah. <laughs> Can't blame them. Probably. And he was also, and I'm not writing in anything else but German. You know, everything else can, yeah. can kiss my ass because that was also another problem with him, too. He didn't want to write in the, what, what was it? Was it Latin that they were that they were writing? In? Precisely, yeah. He said, you know, I don't want to relinquish all of my work to people that are only trained by university. It's the people in the small villages that are mm -hmm. attending to the vast majority of people, and they speak common German. And so I need to be able to make this available to them. So he was very, very cool like that. He, he was like a people's man. You know what I mean? Like he, yeah. he was not for the institutionalized 
he was a nomad uh, too, so he preferred the right the the company of the common folks. That's how he collected so many stories of like elementals and all these different things. Yes, and he was also one of the first ones to. So I read The Devil's Doctor by Philip Boz, a really yeah. great book because the way that he is able to very entertaining, like the way he's able to tell the history of Paracelsus and. He was like one of the first people to his his family in like mining mineralogy, which is something that you don't attribute to Paracelsus very much. And also, I don't know if I read this correctly the other day. He also invented a form of like anesthesia at first, like one of the first forms of anesthesia, which was wild to me. Yeah. So we would now refer to that as diethyl ether, um, but it was like not completely pure diethyl ether. And in his own books, he refers to that as um, uh, spiritus vini, the spirit of wine. But it's not actually wine spirit like alcohol, like we would think of today. And so this is where a lot of like literal translators and scholars don't know their head from their ass. And they, they'll translate that as like wine spirit. We call it today spiritus vini parcelsi which means the spirit of wine of Paracelsus. And it's very similar to like Raymond Lilly's spirit of wine as they talk about that. Um, but it was basically a, a form where you're taking all of the aspects of wine, the tartar, the potassium bitartrate that crystallizes on the oak casks. Um, anytime you put anything in a cask, and you mature it, whether that be whiskey or wine or whatever, you lose some of the alcohol through the wood itself. And um, fermenters and distillers would refer to that as you lose the angel's share. But as that happens, all of the, the wine material that is suspended inside of that fluid, it's losing volume. So that stuff that's suspended has to go somewhere. And what it does is it crystallizes and it crystallizes into this potassium bitartrate. If you calcine all of that out or actually even uh, do a dry distillation of that, we call that a pyrolytic distillation, you can get uh, some interesting tartaric acids and um, you, you get two different basic things. You get like a spirit of uh, the pyrolytically distilled material and usually we turn this into an acetate first so you make vinegar out of the wine as well purify the vinegar into uh, glacial distilled um, uh, acetic acid and then combine the salts of this purified um, potassium bitartrate together that creates a form of potassium acetate you grow these crystals you put these crystals into a flask apply you know roughly 700 degrees to 900 degrees celsius Um, And what ends up happening is that that dry material ends up, you know, sending up these huge plumes of smoke. Well, if you capture those huge plumes of smoke, they will eventually condense back into a liquid. You know, air condenses back into a liquid uh, just through thermodynamics. You know, cool condenses things, heat causes things to rise. So uh, they condense them. That gives you two different basic fractions, though. An oil of potassium, which is an oil of a metal. You know, potassium is a metal. And then you also get the spirit. And the spirit that comes over when you distill uh, just about any metal or any acetate, at least, of a metal is uh, a form of acetone. And that's the spirit. Now, if you take the oil and you distill this together in two different flasks and allow the vapors of alcohol and this oil of potassium or oil of any metal really to be able to condense together then what ends up happening is that that forms this um 
solution that has a lot of diethyl ether. There's also a portion of water and there's a portion of ethanol um, that is inside of there. And he found that uh, if you put this on a cloth and hold it over the mouth of the individual, that um, they will continue to breathe, but they pass out and cannot any longer feel pain. And so that was the first surgical anesthetic. <laughs> Can you imagine like, uh, like this, because Paracelsus has always Paracelsus has always fascinated me. Can you imagine maybe him trying it on himself at? You think he tried it on himself at first, and then was like, you know, woke up in like some days and was like, all right, let me try it with I don't know the the family <laughs> dog or something, right? And then like he, because how would you have gone through the right? Because there was no scientific method back then; it was all just trial and error essentially. And what's really inspiring about this sort of thing is that. These guys had, right, the balls essentially to try this, to go out. And not only that, but to also be perhaps accused of doing something, right? There was the legends that he had the horse, the devil that never tired. He had the the sword that he carried around with him. And in that little sword, there was a little little demon or something or a jinn that would grant him wishes. Like there's all these stories surrounding Paracelsus. And this was from his works as this alchemist, right? Because alchemy is very very shrouded in secrecy and the occult. So you also ran that danger of perhaps being burned at the stake, essentially while you're trying to right heal the people you're trying the physician and the magician back then were the same one and the same. The, the physician was. It's easy to remember if you just sing along. Unocculting or deocculting the hidden natures in in the hidden realities of nature, I guess, right to heal man, right to to benefit man, and so it's very inspiring. And a lot of people don't even think about Paracelsus being attached to like alchemy, right? Like the regular person doesn't know this is what I'm what I'm saying. Like they don't yeah, go, well, yeah. alchemy is just turning lead into gold. Nice Google search there, bro. And like that's that was me yep. when I first started. I wanted, you know, I'm reading Manly P. Hall. I'm reading all these guys, you know, Falconelli, all these weird guys. And I'm like, man, I want to understand what alchemy is. And I still don't understand it. But I wanted to talk to you about perhaps like more of the woo-woo aspect of these things. And what you, what's your take, right? Because you're what a modern alchemist would look like. I consider myself an alchemist as a podcaster that's helping people, right, transmute their ideas real time. They're connecting dots that they wouldn't wouldn't otherwise, you know, connect. And, and Manly P. Hall said that the modern alchemist, right, the cave is replaced with four walls, right? So you, we're, we're, we're here now, we're doing this now, but from your experience doing the actual work, right, the royal art, whatever you want to refer to it as, 
What are your thoughts on like the Philosopher's Stone? And I had somebody come up with an interesting theory in my Telegram chat, which I'm going to read it here, which I thought was interesting, right? Because there's just ideas that we throw around. But they, they said that, I have to find it here anyways, but they said something along the lines that the Spear of Destiny that pierced Jesus on the side, right? The tip was made out of Philosopher's Stone. And I was like, man, that's a really interesting, like, you know, hypothesis, if you will, or, or concept. And then somebody else commented when I replied to that, somebody replied to me and they were like, how would you extract the right? The, how would a stone extend your life? How would it make you live forever? That's the lure behind the philosopher's stone. And from my research, right? Reading Elias Ashmole or any of these guys, well, tastes very sweet. So I was like, I don't know. You grind it up. You put it in your drink. Or you, I guess you, do you lick the philosopher's stone to like, like a, almost like a salt, like, you know, the cows, you give them the salt freaking stone. It's like, do you lick it? And then you kind of benefit from that. But what are your thoughts on these, the more mystical side of alchemy to where there is the, the elixir of eternal life or the philosopher's stone or the divine androgen or the homunculus or like this whole aspect of alchemy being attributed to a more woo woo like what are your, what's your experience with that look the that's not a mystical thing that's people not knowing what the hell they're talking about and trying to come up with fanciful ideas and you know that's a whole problem that's that's actually the whole problem with alchemy the philosopher's stone especially now i can really only speak about this from two different pathways the pathway that i've done the most is the flamel pathway as passed on to me by the philosophers of nature and Jean Dubuis. Now he actually has a video um, that was used to be published by uh, Triad Publishing. This was taken back in the days of handheld VHS camcorders. And so, you know, you'll get kind of poor quality and some shoddy things and, you know, but you can see absolutely everything and with modern, more or less, you know, 1990s style, modern equipment and how to be able to produce the philosopher's stone. Let me just start by saying that the only reason a person would ever be able to uh, accomplish that work, even remotely safely, is if they had years and years and years of laboratory work under their belt already. And the only reason why we should undertake that work is as the crowning jewel of our personal alchemical practice to show that we have been able to transmute something of absolutely no significant value, such as lead or, you know, a baser metal into gold, showing that we have performed the very final crowning jewel of our initiation into nature's mysteries. Our whole concept is basically written about by the Rosicrucian Michael Meyer in Atlanta Fugiens, uh, which was the first multimedia presentation in the world. You know, he had these huge woodblock prints and orchestral uh, vocal music. And uh, it was basically like uh, a movie before there were cartoons and flip pages and movies and shit like that. So he says, we, as alchemists, we, we are called to walk in nature's footsteps. And if I were to interpret my own understanding and my own version of this in the way that I teach my students today, is that we, as alchemists, are given the opportunity to understand nature's processes. We're able to denude nature in such an intimate way that nature herself opens up to us and we are able to grow as individuals to become an equal to nature, utilizing nature's principles for the benefit of all life forms, 
every myriad aspect of life forms. And the metallic kingdom, uh, I'm going to step out of um, medieval terminology and, and renaissance and early enlightenment ter- terminology. We're going to step into modern terminology. When we take a look at, at metals today, they are the most pure of all of the materials because they are a single atomic expression. Now, not to say that they're monatomic, okay, um, but to say that gold doesn't have atoms of other materials in it. It only has atoms of gold in it. Platinum, potassium, etc. They are, as in their metallic form, they are just that atomic representation. They are the most pure organisms on this entire planet. And they are literally crystalline beings. They have crystalline formations that allow them to express that consciousness. It is extremely, extremely pure. Now, when you break down a metal into a mineral, now you have, say, potassium carbonate, where carbon has acted on the potassium, and now it's formed a mineral. That That is a mineral. It has a metallic basis, but it also has a reactionary element to it, okay? Carbon, oxygen, uh, various acids like uh, ascorbic acid, okay, acetic acid, etc. Though that that's what ends up creating minerals. And minerals have usually two different types of atoms associated with them, or sometimes many more than just two, but at least two. And so they are less pure. Now those minerals they break apart and they turn into lots of different things. And then bacteria and archaea and fungi and all of these different microorganisms begin to break them down. Okay, like algae and lichen, they begin to break them down and they begin to use photosynthesis and they become much more evolved creatures. But they are far less pure. So we have vegetable materials. Okay, and we're talking algae being the very first type, okay? They're, they're taking things that are dissolved inside of the water, like sodium chloride or, um, you know, uh, hydrogen, oxygen, and, 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 you know, trace amounts of glacial rock dusts, okay, which are going to have basalt and gypsum and all these other things inside of there, right? So they are able to turn that into a life-based, uh, plant-based life form, And they are more complex and more evolved, but far less pure because now they're made of hundreds of different minerals. Um, They're made of dozens of different um, chemical constituents. They're photosynthesizing. They're they're growing. They have a lifespan, whereas minerals and metals don't. And then you have animals and then you have humans. Okay, so humans are the least pure, but the most complex. Animals are slightly more pure and less complex. And you, you just kind of keep that. Now, um, Pythagoras actually, Pythagore, he actually had this, this philosophy and it is known in Italian as la quattro volta, which means, um, the four changes. And the idea is that you're constantly going from metal to mineral, to vegetable, to animal, and then back. And human being is the epitome of, the um the animal progression and we're constantly doing this this evolutionary kind of thing so the reason why we would ever undertake the work of creating the philosopher's stone is just as an initiatic work to be able to prove to ourselves as a self-initiatic system that's first and foremost what alchemy is because you like jean dubuis says you cannot delude yourself in your initiation. 
if I join an esoteric order, okay, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, OTO, whatever, okay, any of these fraternal or, or esoteric organizations, you do some sort of work and some sort of bullshit and you regurgitate some other things and memorize some shit and stick your heel into the crook of your foot at, you know, this angle and, you know, put your hands like this and wear funky aprons and what, you know, all the other bullshit that esoteric orders do. And then somebody tells you when you're ready to move up to the next grade. With alchemy, there's no diluting yourself. There's no, either the work that you did is successful or it isn't. And if it was successful, then you have the working model of what that material went through in order to be able to reflect of what that aspect of that material is in, as a part of your being and the working model, you like it plays itself out in front of you of what steps you need to take on an archetypal level in order to transform yourself or that aspect of yourself in the same way. So that's the entire purpose of the Philosopher's Stone. And most people who have undertaken the work don't know what the hell they're talking about because they're not real alchemists and they've never done that internal transmutation. That being said, um, the Philosopher's Stone is definitively real. There's two different forms of it that you can make. And there's even one with uh, antimony that isn't quite a philosopher's stone, but we call it the fire stone. And that can be made with antimony. But the two stones, there's one that can be made with uh, silver, and this is known as the white stone, and one that can be made with gold, and that's known as the red stone. And actually, you don't even need real gold in order to do that, because there are pathways called the poor man's path, where you can make it from the scoria from making uh, the star regulus of antimony. So there's a very definitive process of being able to make this um, regulus of antimony that has uh, antimony, iron, copper, silver. That's a lunar Venusian martial regulus. And then um, you're able to imbue that into metallic mercury and fly the eagle seven times, which is to say to dissolve that ingot of that lunar Venusian martial regulus into mercury and then to distill that mercury out again, leaving you again with that ingot because that's the way that things work. A metal will completely dissolve inside of, of metallic mercury, but as you distill the metal off, it comes back again. You do that seven times, and then that gives you a philosophic mercury, and then you can take the seed of gold, which, as I mentioned, can come from actual gold, preferably native gold, or from the scoria, uh, with a little bit more work, again, it's a poor man's path, so what you uh, save in money, you make up for in time. And then you take the seed of gold and you put it inside of that philosophic mercury, and then there are a number of different changes that um, go go through. Now, if anybody wants to see this, uh, you can definitely try and find the Jean Dubuis work in order to see how the Lunar Venusian Martial Regulus is made in plain and clear detail and how to uh, be able to fly the eagles um, and all of that. And then also the seeding. And the seeding is uh, documented in, in photos exceptionally well and in writing by Roger Caro. Um, and so like, it's, it's very extremely well documented for anybody who really is out there looking for this information, wants to get through all of the pseudo mystical bullshit that exists around this work. Now, I can tell you that when you transmute a baser metal, give me just half a second. I've got to step off screen here, and I'll grab a couple of samples for you. Yeah, yeah, no no problem. You're, we're revealing the secrets of alchemy. We're demystifying alchemy right now, real time, okay. with a modern alchemist. So, 
So when you make, when you use the, the philosopher's stone that you make, after it goes through a series of changes, the color changes are very, very significant. First, you go through the black phase. So after you impregnate that philosophical mercury, the first thing that happens, you seal it out philosophically and you incubate it. What ends up happening is that the entire liquid mass will first start to turn black and it looks like it's going to decay. This is often referred to as nigredo or the black phase. Okay. Eventually what's going to happen is that these weird white vapors and, and the, the whole time this, this flask is completely hermetically sealed. No air is getting in or out. We just keep refluxing and changing the nature of the materials that are in there through heat and time alone. Okay. It's a very low energy, long duration type of transmutation. Whereas today scientists are trying to use high energy, low duration by particle collision and whatever else. Okay. So the alchemical process is really just the two sides of the same token. They're achieving the same thing. They're just approaching it from two different ways. So um, after it turns black, this white vapor will come up. You'll get white vapor for a couple of days. It starts to kind of condense on the side of the flasks. These are oftentimes referred to as the doves of Diana in certain work. They're referred to uh, in lots of different ways, actually. But then they can fall down and they drip. And then the whole damn thing will turn white. And then after it turns white, then you get a number of other changes that are going to happen in there. Like uh, the things are going to turn green. And it looks like you have like a field of grass. And then eventually you get these tiny little orange flowers that kind of form on that green surface that turns it. Uh, I don't know how else to call it. It really does kind of look like flowers though. And then eventually um, those flowers go away and then this tree like thing will start to grow. And then it forms these weird crystally branches and then red what look like pomegranate fruits form on the, the tiny little branches. And then those red pomegranate fruits fall down and they get into that green kind of surface level, uh, green and orange surface level at this point. And then what happens is that the whole material will eventually turn red. And once the whole thing is like at a bright red or sometimes even a dark red, depending on uh, how much gold you seeded with initially, then you have the philosopher's stone. Now that right there can be consumed. It's not an actual stone. It is a incubated crystalline substance of some sort. I think Robert Allen Bartlett probably has uh, some chemical analysis of what that substance is, but I've never seen his documentation for that directly. But if anybody in the world had chemical analysis of what that substance is, it would be Robert Bartlett. So with that being said, um, Robert told the nod on us, huh? <laughs> yeah. So you can, you can consume that, but to know if it's safe to consume, you have to try and transmute a metal, which means that there are two additional processes. We call that multiplication and projection that that substance has to go through. And then you'll take that substance after multiplication and projection, put it into a little ball of wax, bring a bit of metal into a state of flux, which lead is really easy because you can do it over a candle with a spoon, right? It's like you're smoking crack, but you know, you're just melting lead. Alchemical instead. crack. <laughs> Alchemical crack. Right. And then you, you drop a little bit of that uh, material inside of the wax ball in there. Obviously the wax is going to melt that releases the substance. And if that substance 
turns into a gold-colored liquid, then you know that the initial material that you made is safe to consume, and uh, that will help to extend life, allegedly. Now, I have here two um, samples of gold flake um, that I have sourced. Um, this one I have made through a philosopher's stone path of Jean Dubuis uh, method flamel path. And you can, you can kind of see the color. It's hard maybe right now because I have a light on it, but it's darker than actual gold. But it looks... The heck do I make it bigger? Goodness. There we go. There we go. So it looks actually a lot like gold flake. Mm -hmm. um, but it is not actually gold when we test it. It doesn't have the same atomic number. Number. It looks like gold. It melts at about the same temperature as gold. You can make jewelry out of it that looks like gold. It has somewhere between a hue of uh, 24 karat yellow gold and uh, hues of like rose gold inside of there. Um, so you could totally make jewelry out of it. You could do things like that, but it's not actual gold. But it works as if it's gold for making the oil of gold or for making potable gold. We call that aurum potabile, um, potable gold, um, within the context of spagyric medicine. So it, it behaves a lot like gold for alchemical purposes, which led Jean Dubuis and other people to say the purpose of gold making is for medicine making. But if I compare this sample, this is a uh, gold flake that you're going to buy uh you know like uh, you can get these in, in gift shops and shit like that but if you take a look at those two side by side you can see that this that i have made has a much darker and kind of reddish almost bronze tint to it whereas this is pure what you would think of as 24 karat gold mm -hmm. so these are two different molecular substances uh or atomic substances this is probably not made anywhere in nature that we know of, but it behaves so close to this that for all intents and purposes, it's gold. And some of the philosophers said that you can clean this stuff up to the point where it's even brighter than gold. But I, everybody I've ever talked to who is an adept alchemist, uh, who has undertaken this work and who's you know willing to actually talk about it, because you'll get a lot of people that are not willing to talk about this, um, they will say the same thing that I do so that it looks and behaves a lot like gold, but it is not actually gold. And so are we transmuting something? Probably not. Are we tinging or technically tincturing, which means to change color? Are we tincturing something? Yeah. And this was known very much so like the whole concept of chrysopoeia was known in uh, ancient Greece and they used it for industrial manufacturing purposes where to have say a solid gold rail is not feasible to make, but you can make, you can take brass or bronze or other different metals and through this science be able to change the color so that it acts, looks and behaves like gold. And now it's much cheaper and it's just an industrial process that you know you have to be initiated into you have to know how to do the work but it's still feasible to and and, and realistic to do so and the was john 
Dubois, was he involved with Patrick Revere? Do you know? Because I feel like I, I did a translation of this French video where they're doing a trans. He shows the two paths. You know, they show him collecting the dew in the morning, and they show right. one guy doing the wet path, another guy doing the dry path, and then they do a transmutation on camera. And I feel like John Dubois was in that documentary, and so was Patrick Revere. But do you know if they were involved one, with one another? Uh, John. Uh, I would imagine. I would imagine so, but I can't speak to that directly. I don't. I don't know that because uh, by the time I was really deep into my alchemical studies, Jean Dubuis was passing away. He was pretty old at that time. The last thing that he was working on, I remember, was an electronic because he he worked for IBM. Okay, he wow. he was such a smart dude. Jean Dubuis was he he knew so much uh about technology and sciences and so he was coming up with a way of initiating people into different sephira the tree of life through electronic means he wanted a, a, an ability to be able to put on a device or to be able to alter frequencies inside of the physiological organism that would provide the initiatic states that alchemy provided for the mass evolution of humankind, but without them having to do all of the alchemical work. So if they could be initiated into the mysteries of Jacob's ladder and, and the multiple different tiers of the uh, of the tree of life, then that was kind of his goal and he was working towards that. And, and to the best of my knowledge, he did not complete that. But I think, I think Jean Dubuis passed in 2009, which was the same year that I inherited a lot of the stuff from Frater Albertus's secretary, who at that age, at that time was 91 years old. Um, so uh, they were very, very old. And, and I was just new. I graduated high school in 2004 I got interested in alchemy uh, in 2004, but I didn't even know that what spagyric meant. I was practicing spagyric tincture making because I had found this document by Fate and Fortune of how to make the spagyric tincture. Um, I had tons of, I went from a Catholic school to a, a public school and basically I had all the credits I needed to graduate, but unless I got a job, my mom wasn't going to, you know, give me home release because uh, I was smoking a lot of pot back in those days. So I ended up going into the computer lab and uh, printing off some documents of how to work with these plants after having this uh, very heavily psychedelic cannabis-fueled um, vision in the woods of like, I'm surrounded by all these plants, and I don't know any of them. I don't know what they do. I don't know shit. And so I wanted to learn how to do that, and I went to the computer lab, and I found out how to make some tinctures, and I the very first document that I printed off was how to make a spagyric tincture. And it was just a flow chart. And so I was practicing that flow chart and, and doing that in the woods um, for two years. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that a friend of mine said, you know, I don't know why your tinctures are so important or so much more potent than mine. And so I showed her my notes and she said, you know, this whole thing that you're doing with calcination and like leaching out salts, like herbalists don't do that what you're doing is called spagyrics. And I said, yeah, I know this is how to make a spagyric tincture. And she's like, well, do you know what spagyric is? And I said, no, and she says part of alchemy and the largest alchemy school in the world is here in Utah. Unfortunately that school closed Frater Albertus died two years before I was even born. But I, at that point I at least had a direction to move in and 2007. So I found that out in 2006. 
2007 rolls around and the first international alchemy conference is held in Las Vegas. And they have all of the living students of Frater Albertus going there um, as honored guests at that thing. And so, you know, I got to meet Art Kunkin and Robert, uh, Robert Bartlett and, um, you know, just like dozens of students, Tim Wilkerson, you know, all these, all these guys that um, I was just kind of blown away and listening. I remember, I think it was 2008, the following year at the International Alchemy Conference, I listened to Robert Allen Bartlett give a presentation on the thermal decomposition of the metal acetates. And my, I didn't even know what that was. I, I mean, I was sitting there looking at this and just thinking like, wow, shit, maybe one day I'll Neither understand I. all of this. <laughs> yeah, 2009, 2010 rolls around. I had all those resources and I had the handwritten notes of Frater Albertus and Viola and Norm Engel and Jack Glass even, and, you know, all these guys, all these students from Frater Albertus's classes and a ton of the texts with that were highlighted and have like sticky notes attached to them that say, you know, do this, do this at this temperature. This means this, this means this. And so in just a few years, I mean, that fast tracked my entire alchemical evolution and it was not any later than about 2010, 2011, where I was able to put all of that information into practice and really, really dive in deep. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the way that it happened for me, man. And, and, uh, I didn't even know that I was practicing alchemy though, for like the first two years, I had no idea that Spigeria was a tradition of alchemy. So when people ask me, how'd you get into alchemy? It's like by fate and fortune. You know, I, I dislocated my ankle because I had two life paths that I was really going to go down. I wanted to be a professional skater. You know, every 15-year-old kid back in those days wanted to be a professional skater or BMX or whatever in the town I was from. So that was just kind of like the trajectory. But I also had this deeply spiritual side. And for me, that spirituality, you know, my logic at that time was guys like Da Vinci and guys like Galileo, like they were Catholic. So I'm I got to get into Catholicism and, and my parents were like, what Catholicism? You want to be Catholic? Okay. Do your thing. I found myself a couple of godparents to take me to mass and uh, I started studying and I became a, a very quick theologian and uh, a scholar. I can still recite to you almost the entire catechism of the Catholic church, all the prayers, everything, even though I've left Christianity many, many, many years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, and then I excelled in Hebrew studies. And once I got into Hebrew studies and then started getting into Mesopotamian studies, eventually, as you follow Abrahamic faiths back far enough, you get into the stars and the stars get you out of Christianity. And they help you to realize why Christianity is the way that it is, why the cosmology is the way that it is, what it means and how it carries on symbols of the stars. But it's so different from the actual source of the Mesopotamians, the Chaldeans, Babylonians, and the ancient Egyptians that followed and so on and so forth, the Greeks that followed after that, that uh, people wouldn't even know that they're worshiping the stars. And so these days, the Abrahamic God is actually the constellation of Aquarius. It's the water bearer. It's the one who flooded the world. And most people, uh, we would also call this uh, Enki um, in the, uh, the Babylonian myths. And so they're worshiping this God who is technically a white hat entity <laughs> and uh, they, they don't have any idea of that. But the further you go, the deeper you find that out. And uh, most people who become uh, theologians and scholars pop out that other end and they're no longer theologians, at least within the traditional Christian sense, because they find the deeper esoteric meanings of all of those things 
And you see that there is a God, so to speak, but it's a source of all creation. And that good and evil are really just two sides of the same token to drive evolution of all things. You have to have this dualistic nature because masculine pole, feminine pole, that's what creates the electromagnetic covalence. Without, with just a single pole, there's no covalence. Unity consciousness is very, very boring. It's not something to just engage in. You have to, for all of creation to continue to grow and evolve, there has to be a dynamic relationship. So we begin to see all of this, and, and that kind of changed my whole thing. But to get back to earlier, I was very, very spiritual from a young age, and uh, I wanted to be a, a Catholic monk, and uh, I was going to be at our local uh, monastery here in Huntsville, Utah, and uh, take my priest vows at 18, 16 years old. I end up, you know, stumbling, you know, I'm smoking pot and getting into uh, alchemy uh, without knowing that it's alchemy at that time and having some very deep realizations. Then I took mushrooms and I meditated and came one-on-one, you know, online with uh, what I perceived to be God at the time and said, hey, you know, big guy, I'm trying to... uh, devote my entire life to you but these concepts every time that we reach a logical fallacy it just gets explained away by this divine mystery i'm not okay with that you need to give me something to chew on even if i can't understand it even if it's beyond human comprehension try me because i'm devoting everything to you with more or less blind faith i can't have it be blind i don't mind having faith but it can't be blind you need to give me something to chew on transmission came you're looking in all the wrong places you need to look towards energy end of transmission boom right there i define myself as like heavily agnostic that there is some sort of source or intelligence to the universe but i need to start studying quantum physics i need to start studying other different forms of energy and uh, that led me into energy work and crystal healing and you know reiki and uh you know that that all of that kind of energy work led me into more scientific materials that uh, like Dr. Richard Gerber's work with vibrational medicine. And then that led me into, you know, energetic herbalism and Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and so on and so forth. And then diving deep into the alchemical traditions a few years later and studying comparative religion, comparative psychology, depth psychology, so on and so forth. And so my whole journey has just been this huge interdisciplinary thing as a way of helping me to understand my own place in the universe. And eventually it was that I get to define that. And what I want to do is I want to be an agent of transformation and change for myself and all of nature so that we have the ability to co-evolve together for the greatest sense of happiness and health that that we can. That might sound really cliche, but that's ultimately what I landed on. Yeah, no, I I love that. And as you were, you know, earlier explaining like the, the philosopher's stone and the creation of it just as you were going through all the steps i was trying to visualize the alchemical plates depicting what you were saying like the little tree growing from that and the fruits almost like the teardrop looking things falling back down and just some and it's like they were doing something right they were they were doing something while they were going about their whole thing and one thing that stood out to me always was I forgot where I read it, but that the seat, like one of the secrets to one of the main things about alchemy is the fire, right? But not only the fire, but learning to control the fire and the temperature of that fire. So yeah. what you were saying about, 
it's hermetically sealed. The only thing left is the controlling of that fire if you get too hot. And it makes perfect sense with how. So to, to wrap up, what are your what are your thoughts on? Because I've always said that, right, the reptilian lizard people, if they are reptilian lizards, I don't know, but that they are trying to transmute reality itself. Would you say that they are using alchemy or are they using something different? Are they using a sort of magical system what are your thoughts on that because alchemy seems like a sort of all the, the utility knife of like the accord you have everything there you can yeah. transcend time you can extend your life you can transfer your consciousness you can heal yourself you can do everything like what are your thoughts yeah. on that i mean alchemy is just a universal holographic and fractal pattern that everything uses to change form which is to say to transform from one state to another and everything is always in flux and in one or, or one or more phases actually of uh, the transformational process at any given time. What separates an alchemist from anybody else is that an alchemist sees and understands that and knows how to utilize that process consciously to be able to do it in a time frame that uh, is important. And so like most people, they have to um, encounter a crisis and they transform out of necessity or they die. An alchemist chooses to create a crisis in order to guide transformation. Now, there are people out there who understand this principle and are using it for their own self-serving needs. Those people are not alchemists by my definition because they're not performing self-transmutation. They're performing manipulation. And that is to me, the same thing as chemistry. It's a bastardization of the actual spiritual, philosophical, uh, psychological, and, and physiological art form that is alchemy. They're, use, they're, they're taking aspects of it and utilizing it. And so when we manufacture a crisis to elicit an emotional response, that is calcination, dissolution, and then they come up with a solution. It's a manufactured solution. That solution is the process of separation. And then what leads to that immediately over time is a crystallization of what it is that they're looking to do. Now, whether people are using this consciously or whether they're using it unconsciously and just have very manipulative and, and uh, behaviors and, and desires and goals remains yet to be seen. But I'll tell you this, um, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, the 13 families and the Freemasons. Okay, there are a ton of banking families in the world that go far beyond 13 families. You can talk about these 13 families and even those only go back so far. So, there, you know, people will conflate anything that they they find in order to fit their narrative, they don't allow reality to speak for them for itself and to impress itself upon them. They impress what they want to be true upon what they can find. And so they find these things, but anybody who has been part of a Freemasons guild, you don't hold pancake breakfast for Christ's sake to raise money for your lodge. If you are controlling the world. Okay. It's just, that's just not the way that it works. So, and, and all the people who philosophize about, you know, the lizard people and this is and that's and, and the people who are controlling the state of the world, that has to do with fate and fortune and money more than it has to do with esoteric knowledge. A lot of these guys have access to esoteric knowledge. They don't, they, they buy books and they sit on shelves and they don't read them. They don't know how to do it most of the time. They don't like, they're just collecting and then they are utilizing principles of mentalism 
in order to be able to achieve what they want. And if people would stop bitching and moaning and complaining and use those same principles of mentalism to achieve what they want, the world would actually be in a lot better place. Because the fact of the matter is that we have a very minor group of individuals utilizing the healthy principles of mentalism in order to be able to manifest what they want. But it's a key tenet of all Rosicrucian practice that abundant health, happiness, and money exist. Infinitudes of it exist. Everybody can have it. But you have to know how to seek it. You have to know how to go after what you want. You have to know enough about how nature works that you can replicate those processes in the mental realm in order to be able to make that work for you. Is that alchemy? Not necessarily, because uh, alchemy is a very unified field. Are there alchemical principles at play? Sure. And uh, are there... Uh, lizard people, there there might be. The, the, as far as I know, the world as we know it is a crazy, crazy place. And the truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. So I'm not going to discount that there are interdimensional uh, races of beings here that, you know, seem somewhat disguised or have even interbred into uh, human physical life form. I don't know the mechanisms. I don't understand all of it. And I don't pretend to, I think that's where people get into um, a lot of crazy shit. But what I can say is that uh, people need to stop bitching and moaning about other people or pointing fingers at other people. And they need to start taking control of their lives and understanding things because just like I have clearly outlined and been able to denude what alchemy is and what alchemy is. And I could go even deeper and deeper and deeper into all of this. The information is abundant. It's out there. You need to get out of your own way and be able to find it if that's what you want to do. And it doesn't happen from sources like Manly P. Hall. The guy didn't really know shit about Shinola and he wrote the secret <laughs> teachings of all ages in his early twenties for Christ's sake. He, you know, in Irish, we have a phrase, that says, Ni hagen kill rivish, which means uh, experience basically doesn't come before age, right? Mm -hmm. uh, sense, uh, kill would be sense. Sense doesn't come before age. And so when you have young people pretending to know what the hell they're talking about, they really don't. I knew, I thought I knew what I was talking about in my 20s because I was pretty advanced for a lot of the other folks in alchemy. And the older I get, the more I realize I knew shit then. And I probably know really shit now because it, the, the universe just keeps, you know, telescopically expanding the more and more and more that I grow and have the opportunity to experience. Well, so welcome to the club. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's humanity, right? So anyway, that maybe that answers your question. Maybe it doesn't, but that, that's what came to mind. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I agree with you on that. A lot of people will just sit instead of actually doing something about it or going out. And, and I think what it has to do a lot with this instant gratification, sort of technologically driven society that we're in, where people just want either, you know, a 15 second clip of what that thing is, or how to find it, right? And, and if it's not within 15 seconds, they swipe up to the next thing. So they don't care about reading about Paracelsus or Gerard Dorn or, yeah. uh, you know, Jean Dubois or anything else. Like they don't, you know, that, that to them is, is so, you know, below them, you know, in their perception below them that yeah. they don't even bother with it. And I think, you know, I'm the opposite. I believe that this is super fascinating, super interesting, uh, Phoenix, you were great. I'd love to have you back on again 
to talk about more of the lab work, what that consists of, because I was actually thinking about getting into doing some practical alchemy, but you made me reconsider. I don't know. I think it might be above my pay grade right now because uh, there's so many layers of alchemy. It's like learn. And, and I've been, and another person that has really deconstructed my view on alchemy has been Adam McLean and the way he oh, yeah. he goes about interpreting the alchemical, you know, just the plates themselves is it could be it can be abrasive to some, you know, some people. And I can see how that could be because it was kind of sort of abrasive towards me, even me not having really skin in the game. You know, I'm not a practicing alchemist and I'm right. reading about how he goes about interpreting. And, and it, honestly, it's shifted the way I look at alchemy uh, recently. And now speaking with you, it's like, OK, well, there's obviously a lot more to it. And I'm not sure if I can dedicate the time and I also don't want to just be boiling my piss in my backyard in a corner, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. If you want to do mundane chemistry, go take some chemistry classes and do yeah. some mundane chemistry. Yeah. If you really want to like transmute yourself, then simple, affordable aspects of the lab work will be able to teach you everything that you need to have those visualizations. And you don't need to have a huge lab. I mean, yeah, we're talking stainless steel condiment dishes, you know, we're talking like mason jars, we're talking a back, you know, a backyard fire pit or a wood burning stove, you don't need to have a whole lot in order to actually perform the basis of this in order to be able to see it and have a working diagram of it and to be able to understand how the transformation works. And you don't have to work with highly dangerous or complicated materials and work through all the different, it's not like that. So, you know, I encourage everybody to get interested in lab alchemy just a little bit because it gives you that diagram, that working visual, that diagram, and an under an existential understanding of the processes that are necessary to undergo exaltation and especially transmutation. But this is not the path for most people in life. And um, most people are not called to this path. Most people, it's, it's expensive. It's very time consuming. It's life consuming. And if you, if that's not like, your inner drive is just to do that, then I would say don't do that, but just engage it at the level of your own interests. And that's a fun place to be. One more question, Phoenix, before we get out of here. Was the homunculus real or not? Better question is, is the homunculus real or not? And yes, let's talk about that on the next episode because uh, Joseph Lazuski has a very, very interesting account of that and mark stavish had to perform an exorcism on that and it's been made in recent times and i can actually fully divulge the methods of how that would be made in addition to how evolution from an alchemical perspective is seen and how that is performed in the laboratory using uh fermented rain and snow water and things like that a fellow homuncologist phoenix aurelius thank you bro this was great and i'm looking forward to that you've hyped me up that's awesome. Uh, can you tell people where they can find you one more time? You plug your website, anything else that you want the people to know about? You have a YouTube channel or anything? Sure. 
Yeah, so uh, the best place to find everything is on my website. That's phoenixaurelius.org. From there, if you go to the media tab, you can see uh, links to probably this interview. As soon as it gets posted, we post all of the interviews I've ever been on up there. I've got my own podcast called the Alchemiculture Podcast. That's on YouTube. It's syndicated to you know Spotify and, and Apple Podcasts and you know all the places that you guys would uh, be able to find podcasts. Um, well, I'm currently, uh, I, I took a little bit of a hiatus there for a little while, but we now have, um, a lot of guests. I'm interviewing people weekly again. So we have a lot of really fun, uh, types of guests and topics. Um, but my website is the best place. I have tons of cool things. The 2024 astronomical calendar is out. If y'all want to learn how to actually tap into, uh, cosmic rhythms and use them practically in your life and be able to feel them not like oh i'm a gemini so therefore i'm flighty <laughs> like i'm going to teach you the real shit um with this calendar and you'll be able to tap into the real shit that is a great resource i also have uh, an entire video on that about how to use it i've got uh over 480 different spagyric products in the spagyric apothecary there's probably something in there that you're already using, whether that's, you know, simple herbs like lavender or whatever, or more complicated TCM herbs and formulations or Ayurvedic herbs and so on and so forth. I, I always suggest that people try out the spagyric version of them because they're far more potent and require much less dosage. Um, I make a bunch of different types of supplements. We carry Rocky Mountain Shilajit and uh, Spagyrzyme Probiotic, which is a particular probiotic that I made specifically to help enhance the bioavailability of spagyric tinctures. But it turns out that I was able to find out how to break apart hydrocarbons like uh, crude petroleum and, um, you know, uh, forever chemicals and things like that. And so it's a great way of uh, being able to put transmutational substance into your body in order to help get rid of toxins and other things. I've just got like a whole slew of things on there, uh, but there's links on my website to absolutely everything that I have done, everything that I do, complete bios and everything. So if you want to learn more about my story and what I've done, where I've been, um, it's pretty much all there. And I, I got a question for you though, Juan, right before we go, did you make that hat? Do you sell those hats? I made it. You like that? I like that. <laughs> I like that. Man. Make alchemy great again. Yes, that's yeah, that's pretty bro. sick. I saw that and I was like, oh man, I missed a marketing opportunity. Yes, you did. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, I got it made at this. So what ended up happening was I had made this one at first, right? And this font and this style <laughs> yeah. looks a lot better. But then I was like, wait a minute. Why did I do this first? Why didn't I do this first? And then when I went back to make it, they've changed the style of the hat and they took the font like away. So yep. it doesn't look the same. But yeah, this is it's pretty sweet. Yeah, but that is still great. That is that is awesome. And brother, like you are making alchemy great again. Thank you for bringing it up. Thank you for having me. And I would be honored to come back and discuss some more stuff sometime. Awesome. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, homunculi and famunculi. Make sure to follow the show on social media at the one on one podcast, tjojp.com, patreon.com slash the one on one podcast. Also, call in, leave a voicemail. I'll be getting a lot of voicemails. I'm going to be doing an episode soon 407 476 4606. 407 476 4606. Tell me about your Illuminati shape-shifting experience, which I actually did get one of those. So, uh, you know, any experience, anything, any comments on this episode, whatever, and also leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Thumbs up, comment, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Phoenix, thank you again. Really appreciate this. This was super fun. 
Looking forward to the next one. And as always, everyone, see you on the other side. Some of us, it's an addiction The way that the rays from the sun Keep coming up missed